Thank you, John and team. Uh, if you have a prayer slip, if you pass that to the center aisle, Kurt and Ron will pick those up. It's my privilege, uh, again, I think this is his eighth time here, eight or nine. Matthew DeLauder has become just a, a wonderful partner in the gospel in New Orleans. Every time he preaches, I'm just blessed as he brings the word. And uh, Matthew and Annie have been laboring in New Orleans since 2014. 15, 2015, they dedicated their new facility on Elysian Fields June 11th, and uh, we were rooting for you here as Dr. Moeller was preaching, uh, and we're thankful that uh, Taff was able to come, uh, but we they regularly are lifted up in prayer, and brother, we are just so thankful for you. Please come and share God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Well, good morning, First Baptist Gonzalez. It is so good to be with you this morning. And yeah, I believe this is the eighth time. I was telling uh, Pastor Jim, I think the first time I came, he was preaching from the Gospel of John. But yeah, for the past seven years, I've been able to share God's Word with you. Uh, we will be in First Samuel 8. Um, I believe we had some pictures I sent to Jared. I don't know. Yep, there we go. So if you have not seen the building in a while, that's pretty much what it looks like right now. Um, that's our sanctuary right there. can hold up to about 350. I think it has about 280-something chairs in it right now. Uh, so thankfully right now our church is meeting uh, this morning uh, in that building. We're still meeting under a temporary occupancy. And that's uh, the reason we have a temporary occupancy is because we have not had our fire sprinklers tapped in. So we're not officially clear from the city. So uh, that and along with another issue uh, with uh, our driveway is kind of holding us up with getting a permanent occupancy there. So we we would just uh, ask you to pray as one that we could just have favor with the city and a permit that we're waiting on the city to release to us that they would release that permit um, uh, and that we would just be able to yeah, move towards just having permanent occupancy there but our congregation is meeting there and I just hope by seeing these pictures that you would just see uh, really the fruit of your hands um, obviously it's the Lord who uh, builds a church um, and I do mean a people uh, but the Lord in his wisdom does that through various means and one of those means is gospel partnerships. That's always been the case since Jesus instituted the church and Emmanuel Community Church. And I just, I say this, I think every time I come here would not exist without First Baptist Gonzalez Church and churches like First Baptist uh, Gonzalez. So thank you so much for your investment. These pictures are really the fruit, or at least one picture of the fruit of that investment. And I hope you're encouraged by that. First Samuel 8, First Samuel 8. So I told Taff, he's actually going to get this same sermon he came to hear when he uh, visited us from First Samuel 8. But uh, our church currently right now, while I'm preaching, is going through the books of First and Second Samuel. So we'll be in First Samuel 8 this morning. If you haven't read... Uh, First or Second Samuel in a while. Um, I'll just uh, give you a, a, a little context of what we're walking into. If you're familiar with First Samuel eight, it's coming off a, a previous four chapters of the Ark narrative, and the Ark narrative is basically this: uh, Israel uh, decides to get a little superstitious, or so it seems, with the Ark. They're losing to the Philistines. They're surprised by how they're losing to the Philistines, and so if you remember Eli's evil sons. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they decide to take the ark out and say, well, surely, you know, we've brought the ark out into battle before and we bring the ark out into battle. God's presence is with us. And just like in Jericho, when the, the walls fell down, surely he will defend us. Surely he will deliver us from the Philistines. But we see that the Lord 
God doesn't allow this to happen. Actually, the Lord allows him to be defeated. He allows uh, his word to be confirmed that was spoken through uh, young Samuel uh, that uh, Eli's sons would die, and that's what happens. And then Eli himself, upon hearing the report that uh, not only have they lost another battle, but they have also lost the ark, and um, and that the and, and you have this whole scene of uh, the of his grandson being born, who's named Ichabod, because the glory of the Lord has de- uh, departed from Israel. So this is a really dark time in Israel's history when the ark is taken up. And so you have that whole narrative that precedes 1 Samuel 8. But even as the ark is received back to Israel, you have a bit of a fast forward here because you'll get this picture in 1 Samuel 8 that Samuel is no longer a, a, a young prophet, but Samuel has even aged himself and has sons himself. And really what you're seeing here in 1 Samuel 8 is a transition in the history of Israel, uh, a transition of governance. So it's one of the really most important chapters in our Old Testament narrative because what we're seeing is this this really this shift in how the people of Israel are going to be governed. And so let's see this from 1 Samuel 8, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll consider that. 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just humbly come to you and ask, Lord, would you help us to see the very glory of God in the face of Jesus as we consider your word. Lord, teach us this morning. Um, instruct us in wisdom. Lord, Lord, help us, Lord, to see just even, Lord, your wisdom, Lord, and how you allow your people even to pursue after things that are not good for them. Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would help me, Lord, just even as a weak man, Lord, to make much of Jesus this morning. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that he would be the hope of every heart when we leave this room this morning. Lord, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to break 1 Samuel 8 up into really three parts, just three parts to consider here. Hope that we'll see much wisdom from this passage today. And then I think that even as I preach to a young congregation in Emmanuel uh, in New Orleans, I'm always trying to help them see there's much wisdom for us, much relevance for us from passages like 1 Samuel 8. So I hope that we'll see much wisdom, but I hope we'll also see just the glory of the gospel uh, today from 1 Samuel 8. So three parts. I want us to consider Samuel's sons. Just look at this short passage here on Samuel's sons. Secondly, I want us to consider the elders' requests. The elders request, and then I want us to look at really the last part where we see Samuel's prayer and Samuel's report. So we will see Samuel goes to the Lord and then he reports to the people what kind of king they will have. And we see that their response there at the end is that they still want the king that they're asking for. So first we want to look at Samuel's sons, the elders request, and then Samuel's prayer and Samuel's report. So Samuel's son. So we see this in verses 1 through 3. We hear of these young men, Joel and Abijah. So this call really for institutional change in the leadership of Israel starts with the question of Joel and Abijah. Joel and Abijah are the sons of Samuel, and they do not walk in the ways of Samuel. This is what is raising this question of hey, we, we don't want things to go as they've been going because of your two sons. Now, the question comes up, well, how are they not walking in the ways of Samuel? And, and, and it's very clear to us. It says, well, they turned aside for gain. And then this is going to be a very important, just early piece of wisdom and lesson for us here as we even think about leadership in our own day. And not just leadership in our own day, but even our own hearts, even if you're just a faithful Christian, of the allure and the appeal for gain. It says that they turned aside for gain. Now, how did that manifest itself? And this is often how it can manifest itself. Then, namely, that they took bribes and they perverted justice. And instead of caring as judges to execute justice, their justice could be dictated by how someone would maybe give them something instead. They would accept bribes and pervert justice. Now, this is wisdom to us once more, really, in the book of Samuel and how to identify negative and potentially dangerous qualities in leaders. And the great temptation of having a position of power is to use that position of power for gain. 
This is, this is nothing new to our day. We see it happening in our day, and we can see it happening in our day, whether it be in secular politics, or we can even see it happening in our day, whether it be in the church. There's always a temptation to use a position of power for gain. And we see that Hophni and Phinehas, they did this as they would take meat that they should not be taking from their people, and the, even the people that would bring the meat to them say, you shouldn't be taking this. And what would they say to them? They would say, I'm going to take this, and if you don't give it to me, I am going to harm you. So we don't, we don't even just see like a reaching for gain, but a harsh reaching for gain. You will give me your meat or I'm going to take it from you with force. Brothers and sisters, let this be wisdom to you today. I have no shadow of a doubt from the pastors I know in this congregation that you are having good examples of what godly leadership looks like. But we have to always remind ourselves what are the negative qualities? What are the qualities that we should keep a lookout for? And understand, these are not just authoritative positions that we're talking about here. These aren't just general leadership positions that we're talking about. These are leadership positions that are meant to lead and care for the people of God. This is why the scriptures warn uh, about such places and, and contexts where people will try to utilize godliness for gain. First Timothy 6 speaks in these ways. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Listen to this. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there's three, there's a lot of negative qualities you hear there, but there's three negative qualities that I think you should listen to and latch on to there. Because I, I remember one time, uh, when I was in college, it was just around that time starting to study my Bible more, uh, study theology more, just trying to understand, okay, what does it mean to be faithful to the scriptures? And I remember going to my grandma's house and um, she was listening to basically a prosperity preacher online. And my grandma was someone who had faithfully taken me to church, took me to this small little United Methodist church that preached the gospel uh, in, in just small town Mississippi. That's where I became a believer. And so as I'm studying things, I know she's listening to someone she shouldn't be listening to. But there's a, a craftiness to the presentation that she, that she can't really discern. Well, Matthew, this sounds like this is from the Bible. How am I to discern if this is a false teacher or not? And, and, and brothers and sisters, this is something I always try to remind my congregation. Even when there's some subtleties, some craftiness, and there's some presentation, you're like, well, this sounds like what the Bible teaches. Here's at least three things that you can pay attention to today. Pay attention to the character. Is this person puffed up with conceit? False teachers always have a level of being conceited, self-seeking. Or here's the second thing. Is there an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words? Does this person just build up a ministry on controversy? I mean, you can go search YouTube and find that everywhere today. People who just establish ministries on controversy. 
I'm not saying it's definitely something you don't want to be around, but you at least need to perk up. You need to think, is this something I want to feed myself with? And then third here, as, even as what we're seeing with Samuel's sons, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, that people will use godliness as a means of gain. Hear this today, friends. There is a temptation to see godliness as a tool. And think how wicked this is, not just for leaders, but for any Christian to want godliness so that you would receive praise, to want godliness so that you would receive power, to want godliness so that you may receive money. Brothers and sisters, the goal of godliness is to know the living God, not to gain the world. That's the goal of godliness is to know God and be like him. Listen how Paul continues in 1 Timothy 6. In 1 Timothy 6, and this is where you get the danger of it, right? The danger of it. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Listen to this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pastors, deacons, church members, the allures of wealth are nothing to be played with. Paul tells us that the very thing that may lead you away from the faith is not some philosophical debate. The the very thing that may lead you away from the faith is not some suffering. That that can happen and does happen. But the very thing that may pull you away from God is the riches of this world. Does the gospel not even give us a perfect picture of this? Of a rich young ruler who stands before his creator and looks him in the eyes. And Jesus knows what this man needs. This man needs to let go. He needs to let go of what this world is offering him. Let go of your riches and just give it away and follow me. And this young man looks his creator in the eye and says, no, I want the creation instead of the creator. Friends, that is what the allures of this world will do. One other note here from 1 Samuel. I'd really never noticed this until just studying the passage. Uh, But as I studied this passage, it even seems that the installation of Samuel's sons very well was an unwise thing done on Samuel's part. Now, why did I say that? Well, one, it says that Samuel, when he became old, he is the one who made his sons judges in Israel. Now, one thing that's important to note there is that priesthood would be hereditary, but being a judge wasn't necessarily hereditary. Now, I don't want to do too much with the text that's not there, but very well this problem came about because Samuel was putting his sons in a place that they shouldn't have been. Now, if that is the case, and I think it can be a lesson to us uh, today, is that, friends, even the best of leaders... Even the godly, godly, the most godly of leaders are still men themselves. And they're subject to even bad decisions themselves. If that's anything that we can maybe see from that as well. 
Secondly, let's consider the elder's request. We see this in chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. As I said, the elder's uh, request in 1 Samuel really becomes one of the most important turns in Old Testament history as it brings about a shift in the governance of Israel. Now, on the surface, you may wonder to yourself how I wondered to myself when I read this the first time. What's wrong with Israel having a king? I mean, does God just immediately get mad about the idea, but then eventually he kind of warms up to the idea and says, okay, I'll be okay with a king as soon as I raise up David. And, and, and doesn't even this, doesn't even the request from them seem plausible? I mean, these elders of Israel, they're recognizing a problem, are they not? They're seeing that Samuel walks in a godly way. Samuel does not govern for gain. Samuel governs in a way that he ought to. But his sons don't. His sons are ungodly men. They, 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 they govern so that they can get gain. They will actually pervert justice so they can get gain. So it, it seems like aren't they, it's not a bad request. They're actually seeing something that's wrong in the system. Well, I think the distinction needs to be made that what is wrong with Israel's request is not necessarily the request itself as God has always delighted in mediating his rule through human beings since the creation of the world. This is God's way. But the problem with the, with the request is what is behind the request, the reasoning behind the request, a reason that it's actually deeper than their problem with these two sons. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis argues we must insist in this passage, that the demand for a king was not wrong in itself. If it was not perfectly permissible, it was nevertheless permissible according to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. So I want to read that to you right quick and show you why this demand for a king is not just a, it's it's actually not, you know, unallowable. It's actually permissible. So Deuteronomy 17, verses verses 14 through 20 says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his head may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So Right there, I'm going to recount some of it here in a second just to capture everything that you just heard. But what we're seeing there in Deuteronomy 17, God has set up a way that Israel can call and ask for a king to rule over them. So now in order to understand where the elders fell under their requests, I think what we need to see here 
is what kind of parameters that God set up? What kind of standards did God set up? And maybe that'll help us see all the more of what's wrong with the elders' request for a king. Now, I don't know if you are keeping count, but I saw five characteristics that God wants in his king. Five characteristics. And even as we look at five of these characteristics, they're still relevant to us today, even as we just considered ungodly qualities in leaders. Now we're beginning to see some godly qualities in leaders. So here's five, uh, five characteristics that I saw in Deuteronomy 17. The first one is this, a brother, right? So he says, when you call for a king to be raised up in your midst, he must be a brother. You, you can't go and say, well, this foreign king over here, he looks really strong. Maybe we can bring him in and he can rule us. And he's saying, no, uh, out, from out the gate, he has to be a brother of Israel. Secondly, he's someone who doesn't seek strength from Egypt. So God has delivered them by his power, power from the most powerful uh, force in the land. And he says to them, you can't go back to that power. You can't seek strength, you can't seek strength from that power. So he's someone who doesn't ex- uh, uh, seek strength from Egypt. I think even if we could think about how this is relevant for our day, he's not someone who seeks the strength of this world. Um, and so a third one would be here. So first I had brother. Someone's a brother, someone who doesn't seek strength from Egypt. Thirdly, he doesn't seek excessive gain. What a contrast to Hophni and Phinehas. What a contrast to Joel and Abijah, people who were perverting justice for gain. And this is what God would say of his king that would be raised up in Deuteronomy 7, 17, is that he is someone who doesn't, ex- that, who doesn't seek out excessive gain. Fourthly, he is one who knows and keeps God's word. He knows and keeps God's word. How do we know he knows and keeps God's word? He has to write it all down. He writes it all down. He writes it all down and keeps it before him. Listen, listen I love what it says here. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life. Why? Why does God want him to do this? Does he just want him to be a good student? So you just want him to be uh, like a walking encyclopedia of the Old Testament? Well, why does he have him do this? No, he has him write down the word of God and have it before him all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and his statutes. And this really gets to the fifth characteristics. He is to write down God's word. He is to keep God's word before him that he may fear the Lord. And then he says this, that he may be, and I sum it up in this way, that he may be humble, that he might be a humble king. Did you see that? That he might write down all these words and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. That's the fifth characteristic I see. I'll go through that one more time. Deuteronomy 17, a brother, someone who doesn't seek strength from Egypt, someone who does not seek excessive gain, someone who knows and keeps God's word, and someone who has a humble heart. His heart, as he has his authoritative, powerful position, his heart is never lifted up over his brothers. That's the type of king that God would have for Israel to raise up. So because of the background of Deuteronomy 17 and Samuel's discouragement, what must be assumed is that Israel actually wants someone to be raised up above them and not serve them as a brother. They care not whether he will take many wives or take many possessions unto himself. 
They care not whether he will fear the Lord. They only care that he will be their visible protection from the surrounding nations. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The elders of Israel want tangibility. Ultimately, the elders of Israel want idolatry. God has clearly set them up to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, to be separate from the other nations, and for him to rule as their God through his chosen servants. But this always requires faith and repentance. Faith in the the promises of God and repentance when they don't keep the covenant. We see this even in the last story of the ark narrative. It's not when Israel marches the ark of the covenant into battle that when the Lord comes to defend them. No, actually when they take the ark into battle, the Lord lets them lose. But when is it that Yahweh defends the Philistines? When is it that he keeps them back? It's when Samuel gathers the people to Mizpah and they repent. They confess their sin. It's in their weakness that the Lord defends them from the Philistines. Israel, though, they see what that requires of them. It requires faith, humility, confession, repentance. But the elders don't want this. They don't want this anymore. They want a visible ruler. They want to see his height. They want to see his armor. They want to see his horse. They want someone they can see to rule over them and to protect them and this is an idolatrous request friends i wonder if you would receive this wisdom today just because you have the discernment to judge injustice in the world does not mean that you have wisdom to steer towards justice I'll say that for you one more time. Learn this from the elders of Israel. Just because you have the discernment to judge injustice in the world does not mean you have the wisdom to steer towards justice. Look, it it is actually fairly easy to recognize what is wrong with the world and to complain about it, but it's quite another thing to prescribe a helpful solution. I mean, have we all not experienced this at one time or another around the water cooler? If any of you interact around a water cooler anymore, I don't even think that happens anymore. But back when I was a maintenance worker in college, we had the break room. We had the water cooler. We had places where we would convene and talk about why upper management doesn't know what they're doing. And sometimes that was the case, right? Sometimes uh, those who are working down, actually sweeping the floors, seeing the actual problems, they have good solutions. But at oftentimes, as I would hear my fellow co-workers and even myself complain, whether it be about upper management over this maintenance organization or even complain about the politics of the day, whether it be state politics or national, the thought always came back to my mind, but I don't want them running the place (laughs) just because they can sit here like me in our maintenance uniforms and say this is what is wrong with the world doesn't make them a worthy candidate to come and change everything right or to lead everything this is so important to see and it's so important to be warned by that sometimes we can see what's wrong Samuel's sons are not worthy of what they're doing They are not walking in the way of their father. But what comes as a solution? An idolatrous request. 
Well, in the church, friends, there should be no question or confusion on what God desires for the type of people for his leaders to be. From prophets of old to lay pastors in our day, they should be men who don't seek the strength of the world. They should be men who don't seek excessive gain. They should be men who fear the Lord by knowing and keeping his word. And they should be men who don't exalt themselves over their brothers and sisters. That is true in Samuel's day, and that is true in our day. Third, Samuel's prayer and report. Samuel's prayer and report. Even if we don't have the backdrop of Deuteronomy 17 in our mind, what becomes clear even in this immediate passage, crystal clear, is that the demand for a king is the demand that God will not be their king. Samuel is displeased by the people's request and prays to the Lord. And this is what's amazing about this passage. I mean, there's a lot amazing about this passage, but this is what amazed me. is that Samuel is disheartened by what the people are requesting. And God comforts him. God comforts him and he says what? Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Our God is amazing. These are people that he even says in this moment, I have delivered them from Egypt, and they always forsake me. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So Samuel, after praying, goes back to report to them actually what kind of king they will have. It will not be a Deuteronomy 17 king. But Samuel goes back and gives a report of the type of king they'll have. This king will actually not function as another brother, a humble brother among them with a crown. Rather, he's going to take everything from them. And not only will he take everything from them, and this is maybe even the most dark part of the passage, is that he's going to take everything from you, and then you're going to cry to the Lord, and he is not going to hear you. That's the darkest part of the passage. Friends, the darkest part of the passage is not, and this is even true of our lives, is not when you've lost everything. Because you can lose everything and you can be like the people of Israel in Egypt. And when they cried up, the encouraging part of Exodus is that God heard. And this is what he's saying to Israel now. Now you're rejecting me again, but here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to become slaves again. And I'm not going to listen when you cry out to me. What a picture of the fruit of idolatry. What a picture of what you reap when you go after idols. Friends, hear me today that idolatry enslaves and it cuts off. Idolatry enslaves and that it promises life, but it only gives death. Sin promises to give, but it robs. Sin promises happiness, but it leaves us discontent. Ask the idols of this world to rule over you, to protect you, and to provide for you, and they will destroy you. And worse for Israel, all this will happen to them, and they will be oppressed, they will be slaves, and they will not be heard. I was encouraged to see Pastor Jim was sharing with me that y'all are singing psalms now. So one thing our church does, uh, for each quarter, we have a, a, a quarterly psalm recitation. And uh, one of the psalms that we're reciting right now, or the psalm that we're reciting for this quarter, is Psalm 16. It's a little longer. We tried to do them all short. 
But what is left off the, the page, or I guess off the screen when we recite it each week, is from verse 4. And it says this in Psalm 16. It's relevant to what I'm saying here on idolatry. It says this, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, every time I hear that passage, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, I'm like, I haven't done that this week. (laughs) But I know what it's talking about. I know what it's talking about when it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, please hear me. This is what sin does for you. Uh, and, and I'm going to give an appeal to come to Christ in a moment. So don't, don't mishear me saying, if you come to Christ, everything gets easier. No, I'm just saying, if you try to drink from the wells of idols, you will always be thirsty. You will always be filled with sorrow. This is what idolatry does for you. But what's the Lord's instruction to them? The Lord's instruction is this. With all that is to come towards Israel, God says to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Why? Why would God allow them to go after such folly? Why would God really, it seems, place himself in a place of disadvantage? I mean, he's through Abraham set himself out to be these, this people's God. And now he's just saying, look, this is going to be other ruin and destruction. Let them have it. Why would he do this? Friends, because God as Redeemer likes to fight with both hands tied behind his back. God takes Israel's idolatrous cry and will make it the very pathway by which he saves his people. Go ahead and exchange God for a human king. He will only raise up his king. And Israel, you simply wanted a temporary king to fight your temporary battles, but God has something more in mind. Actually, with the house of David, he will make an eternal covenant and establish an eternal throne upon which the risen Jesus Christ will sit. And, And yes, hear me, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's king to come will not only walk in the strength of the Lord, and not only will he perfectly know and keep God's word, and not only will he be holy, but he will come as the very creator of his brothers, but he will not exalt his life over his brothers. Rather, he will humbly lay his life down for his brothers. And it's in this humble dying of Jesus that we begin to see all the more the kind of king that Jesus is. His death shows us that the political powers of their day and our day are not our greatest fears. The Philistines, the Babylonians, the Romans, they are not the greatest foes. No, for Jesus to meet the greatest foe, he has to go to the cross and to the grave. Sin and death, a foe that has ravaged the world, and Christ the Holy One defeated sin and death and sits now on the eternal throne of David. Friends, if the gospel reminds us of anything today, it reminds us of this. We think so little of God. The human heart simply thinks, I need temporary protection. I need temporary provision. I need the strength of this world. And King Jesus says, I'll raise you up from the dead and seat you in glory. 
we think so little of God. Now, as you hear that, you may say, how can I have that? You just said if there's an unbeliever in a room, and I don't know who that may be today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to a church that sometimes can be uncomfortable to come into. You're like, I don't know where I'm at. But here to say, how can you have that? How can you have what Jesus offers? Two things. First, you must be a sinner. Now, as I say that, I had to say to my congregation, I'm not saying, therefore, go and sin. I'm not saying go and be a sinner. I'm just saying you must be a sinner. And what I mean by that is recognize that you are a sinner. Recognize, and this is what I often say to my children, take ownership of your sin. When you lie, say, I did that. That's, that's my lie. Or when you do something that mom and dad told you not to do, take that and say, I did that. I did it. Because that's coming into the light. That's reality. This is who I am. I am a sinner. And here's the glory of it. Your idolatrous cry, sinner, is like the cry of the elders of Israel. It has actually become the very thing that has made you eligible for salvation because Jesus came to save sinners. Secondly, you must not only recognize that you're a sinner, you must not only come into the light, but you must come into the light. You must come to this king in faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And here is the assurance that the risen King Jesus will give you. Now, this is what I'm going to close with. These are the last words I want you to hear. I want you to hear them from Jesus. This is what Jesus says to those who come to him in faith. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Lord, we pray, Lord, that as his words have just been called out, Lord, that we all would hear and come to him. Lord, whether it's our coming to him for the first time, or Lord, whether it's our coming to him as a 50-year-old faithful believer, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would all come to him, hoping and trusting that all who come to him, he will raise up. Lord, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.